Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Welcome to Mike Could Stories of Innovation in EATL. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Casey Lett Gordon. Casey is the founder of It All Media and host of the It All podcast, the number one destination for modern women uh, looking to redefine it all. Casey is a builder, problem solver, storyteller, coach, and advisor. She is driven and defined by her ability to connect people, create value, and change what it means to be a woman in business. Prior to founding her company, she led strategy for a boutique innovation and growth firm here in Atlanta, where she co-founded an innovation practice centered on helping enterprises build new capabilities and businesses and the largest innovation community in the Southeast. Casey took that experience of sales, marketing, strategy, and building to create It All Media in November 2020. The company is centered on redefining and expanding the narratives, beliefs, systems, and actions that create barriers, real or perceived, to defining and creating one's own It All. So with that, Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be, be with all your students. Yes, it's always great to catch up with you too. So uh, uh, something is probably already clear to folks from that bio uh, and that I know from having known you for a number of years now is that like many uh, uh, innovators and entrepreneurs we've spoken with, it seems that your professional path to the current moment has not been entirely linear. Uh, <laughs> and yet there are also certain threads that run through the fabric of every innovator's journey and seem to sort of stitch it all together. So. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your professional roles up until the last year when you took a sudden pivot and what were some of the consistent threads of the various roles you played? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, nonlinear is, is the name of the game. I think for many of us, certainly the case for me. I did my undergrad at Virginia Tech and got a degree in journalism and Spanish. I don't do either of those now. So that, you know, is is the world we're in. I um my close to my senior year interned in DC working for NBC. And it was a hell of a time to learn that I did not want to work in journalism. Mm -hmm. So um I went back to the drawing board and I said, well, I have four years of a degree focused on a very technical at the time, it was before everything was pushing so much digital, um, a very technical training in journalism. What do I do now? And so for me, I then started looking at what were alternatives paths. I ended up at grad school at Elon University and um, did an accelerated program in interactive marketing and media. That was really an emerging space of um, how do you tell stories digitally that allow people to experience them, get the information they want as fast as they want, but do it in a way that still had the integrity. And um, so I enjoyed the business of media, of storytelling, but not journalism. Mm -hmm. So I end up in Atlanta. Um, I That was really out of just, I knew I wanted to be in a bigger city, but wasn't ready for a New York or a Chicago. I was wanting the Southeast. 
and I started at an ad agency and, you know, like many people who are recent grads, the first job is usually whoever will hire you, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. let me just get in the door somewhere. So I knew that, you know, my skills were in something I've always been able to do is if I can get on the door, I can pretty much chart my path. And that's been true of, of my whole life. And so I got in the door as a media planner. I joke, I was shit at, uh, well, can we cuss on this? Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was shit at doing math. And so they quickly Uh moved me into account management. The thing that I say is good there is I learned the business of I, so anytime you're leading relationships or accounts or sales, it's so important to know the nuance of what the heck it is you're actually selling and representing. I think that's a, that was such a, that was a great learning for me early on. Um, very quickly moved into account management account management, leveraged project management. It was still storytelling, right? If you have a report of numbers, you have to tell somebody what that means. What do these mean? Why do they, why do they matter to you? The who, what, where, when, and why still matters. Um, It was just in a different format. So I was still able to call on so many of those skills for my technical training, writing. I mean, in any professional world, being a great writer, I think is an art within itself, whether it's an email or a slide deck or a conversation like we're having now, being able to synthesize your thoughts. And um, then moved into sales. I'll tell you a quick anecdote about the move from account management into sales, because I'm sure people are like, I get it, but I don't. And the key account I was working on here in Atlanta, it was a major retailer, children's retailer. They were leaving the company. In an agency world, a lot of times when a client goes, so do the jobs. And Mm -hmm. so I started thinking, okay, well, what's next? And the CEO hosted a happy hour um, where he said, hey, anyone in the company, you know, feel free to come. We're going to talk about some of the business changes. And I went and there I asked him, I just spent some time asking my curiosity. And I think that goes back to journalism. Great journalists are curious. And um, so I asked him a bunch of questions. This was a Friday afternoon. And at Monday morning, I get an email that literally all it says is, can you please come to my office in five minutes? And I thought, I'm probably going to be fired. Did I have too much to drink? Did I ask the wrong questions? (laughs) And he says, you're young, you're green, but I think that you asked really good questions and our head of sales is leaving. And if you're interested, I would love to put you in that role. Wow. And so I was 23 years old, leading about a $8 million agency in sales. Now, my mom owns a sales consulting company for my whole career, my whole childhood growing up. I said, I would never work in sales. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My wife works in real estate. And grew up with a mother who was a realtor and said it was something she would never do. Right. And then here we are. And here we are. Well, you know the questions to ask, I guess. So this is interesting. First of all, what were the questions you asked? Because that is a huge leap of faith to take somebody who's very junior and put them in the head of, uh, you know, at the head of a unit like that. Um, What do you think was unique about those questions you were asking that showed him your fitness for that role? Well, at the time, the reason that, so if you think about this was in 2011, 2012, Amazon wasn't what Amazon is today. And all these major retailers were used to selling on their own channels. Well, now it was 
children's clothes. You needed to be able to sell that in a lot of different places. And I recognize the things that selling in pure play on their channels, that was not the only thing that they had to do. And there was a tension within this company. And so I was asking the CEO of how do we think at the time we were working with a lot of other major retailers, Spanx, Haverty's, Home Depot here in Atlanta. So like, how do you think that we are going to help other retailers start to sell in different ways? We just saw this with this major client. And so I think the fact that I was able to see a pattern, not just what was happening in that business, but see a pattern across other companies. I asked about um, some of the financials of the company in the sense of, are you guys, are we able to sustain losing an account and still be able to keep um, team on? It wasn't a pleading of, oh my God, are you going to fire our whole team? It was more of, do we need to be smart and start looking for other opportunities? It was a genuine curiosity of how do you run that business? Hmm. It was questions around, um, you know, what did we want to backfill that client with? Did we want another retailer or did we want to go into other space? So I think that's one thing that, again, I'll go back to journalism and storytelling is you start to piece together the story. You start to say, this doesn't match here, or if this is missing, what would that do? And it was that those curiosity questions that I think were not just about the job I was doing, but about the bigger impacts that got him thinking like, okay, she might be able to be trained in this other space of thinking a bit broader. Mm. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the questions we usually ask uh, guests near the outset of the show is to sort of uh, speak uh, for the benefit of students to the question of how your studies translated to your professional life. But I think you've really done a good job of highlighting that already. Um, and you've also kind of gone the step further of saying, you know, yes, those are skill sets and storytelling is a key piece of it, but it's, it's about patterns, right? And it's about uh, seeing patterns and then proactively articulating questions about where the future lies, sort of what strategically is possible and what that means in terms of the, the financial or business realities of the environment. And largely that is the work of innovation. It's the work of consulting. Um, so uh, it also though is interesting to me that the emphasis in this recounting of it is largely on storytelling and finding the thread of the narrative. Um, that's something, uh, you know, given my background, I've, you know, stated pretty, pretty strongly too. We both have a foreign language background, yes. and a storytelling background, which I love to joke is the straight path to success and innovation. But for us, right. it worked out all right. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right. So um, let me go ahead and ask sort of, uh, let, let's use this as a bridge to your current moment. Um, so yeah. this is kind of a bit of backstory, and there's a lot more we could go into with your work with a boutique agency, which is how we first met. Yeah. Um, but I'd really love to dive into where you are today. Um, it seems like, like many people, you've gone through a big pivot in the last year, right? And it also seems that things are heading in the right direction. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the crossroads moment that you experienced kind of uh, at some point at the outset or during the pandemic and the sort of motivating factors of change for you and how these various forces conspired to uh, really encourage you to do something new and exciting. Yeah, love that. So I'll, I'll give a, a quick line or two about what I'm doing now and I will 
And then I'll go backwards and talk about how we got there because I think they're so interconnected. So what I'm doing now, it started as a podcast and it's really the storytelling of non-traditional paths for women. And when we talk about having it all, right? If I said to a man, you can have it all. It's like, yeah, I know. If you say it to a woman, she she might think of a very specific narrative. Maybe that means she's married with kids. Maybe it means she can work. You know, I think that um, I know as I was graduating into the workforce, sex in the city was a big thing, right? It's like you dress amazing. You're going around with the expensive bag. You have this amazing career living in New York. And it's like, I mean, maybe, but maybe my other, right. my path looks different. And for me, I was so throughout my career had a very specific image of what I was working towards. And then I got it. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and I said, Is that it. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> it made me pause and say, okay, well, that happened quickly. I did that in 10 years. I was a senior vice president of a boutique firm. I had ownership in the company. I had founded a practice and all of these things were hard. I stumbled through most of them as many of us do that are building things. But I thought, okay, well, I did the thing. And so for me, I said, I want to hear other stories of women that are doing things a little bit differently. And that came on the back of, um, having my daughter in 2019. So I had been working really hard for me. Career was how I define myself, you know, nine times out of 10, if I was in a conversation, that's what I would start with. It was really defined by my ambition. And that's still very much as a part of me. But like I said, I wanted the salary, got it. I wanted the title, got it. I wanted the notoriety and public, you know, or to be known. I had the, you know, we did shows like this where I got that. I got all of the things I was seeking. And when I had my daughter in return to work after maternity leave, there was this feeling of, I've been gone for three months and I don't really feel like much has changed. And mm -hmm. this feeling of, I've built the thing. I know now myself after doing it, you know, probably four times the course across my career over 10 years is I'm a builder. I am, I thrive in that building phase. Give me a kernel. Mm -hmm. Don't lay it all out for me, but give me a kernel of something to go chase and I'll be able to help get there. Um, and then when it gets to like a stabilized business, it's not my thing to run. That's not as exciting right. to me. I'm not, that's not my strength. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you'll hear that from probably a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs, like they're the search mm -hmm. party. They really like to go out and find that thing mm -hmm. and then pass it off to people to, to grow. And um, so when I came back, it just all hit me. I thought, you know, I'm not really fulfilled in this. Do I want to go do it for another company? And that felt like, no, I kind mm -hmm. of felt like an entrepreneur without an idea. Some days I'm like, I like to build, what would I go build? I knew I liked to do things for women. I coached women, I advised women led companies, but I had no idea. And the truth was at that point, there was so much simultaneous noise happening, a very high pressure job, a pandemic was gonna come you know, shortly thereafter. So I was still figuring this out in the latter parts of 2019, going into 2020, I was a new parent, mm -hmm. parenthood. I think whether you're a mom or dad, but certainly when you're a mom, it's crazy ride, you know, um, physiologically it's crazy. I'm like pumping in a corner, like of the office. Like, it's just like right. a crazy time in your life. Yeah. And at the same time, I, um, I started, I, I talk a lot about mental health as it pertains to your career, because I think it's important to pay attention to 
how you're feeling in doing this. A job and a career is important, but if you're not around to do said job or career, it doesn't matter. And the moment for me was in December, 2019, I was driving to go pick up my daughter from daycare. I had gotten out of another just very intense meeting. I was sleep deprived. I think we have that in common. Our kids didn't sleep for forever. Yeah. And I thought really, really seriously about driving my car into the on-ramp um, wall, getting onto 7585. Right. Yeah. And I thought, for what? That's so silly. I am a smart educated, privileged, capable person. What am I doing acting stuck in a situation that does not serve me? I have experiences. I have, you know, a ton of opportunities at my fingertips. This is not a life that is worth crashing your car into for what? And it took that moment, that level of, of heaviness to really, to get that. And that started me, I, I talk a lot about, I had a woman on the show, Elaine Fluker, her, she has a new book coming out called Get Over, I Got It. But she talks a lot about living the question. Hmm. And so a lot of times as people, we're so dead set on having the answer, right? That's how what school teaches us. Here's the question, what's the answer? Hmm. And innovation, entrepreneurship, how parenthood, life, there yeah. is no one answer. Right. And you can have 12 different answers that are the right ones. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was that moment where I just realized like, I got to step back. So I did, I worked out a plan to leave my full-time job. I don't say that lightly. I recognize that's huge amount of privilege, but I saved the money I needed to save. I put a plan in place. I talked to my boss very honestly, said, I want to get you all in a good place. I'm going to hire my replacement, but here's the date I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. I, um, I set my team up for success. I had an all women sales and strategy team, which is awesome. So five women mm -hmm. that were on this team that I was super proud of and, um, then took the time for myself and just sat in that creative space. I hadn't done that in at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. I had not just sat without a thing to, in the world to do, because I think even from high school to college, college to your job, it's what's the next thing. Mm-hmm. And we don't often just stop and sit and say, what have I learned? What would I enjoy doing? What am I talented at? And so I lived that question for a bit. And this common thread of, if I felt this way with all the access, privilege, and resource I have, I can only imagine how any other woman might feel that has one degree less of the opportunities I have. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that was where the idea was born. I mean, there's so much there that that is interesting and worth unpacking. Um, you know, the the creative acts of parenthood versus the creative acts of career uh, is one thing that I think is a really interesting tension for all listeners, uh, men and women, and and the particular pressures <laughs> um, that. I have seen um, put on working women mm -hmm. and the difficulties of, you know, you'll know who was running off to pick up the kid after an especially, you know, difficult meeting, right? This is, yeah. um, it, it, and there's so much there that is assumed and unspoken. Um, but there's also this, this question of living the question. That's one place I'd like to really go back to. Um, because that seems to me to be a universal challenge, um, partly for the reasons you mentioned. We are taught in this culture 
uh, to believe that you know things are question and answer. Um, are one thing I've often worked on and and uh, to some extent criticized, though not for its caring, is the way that public education plays out in this country and that we are obsessed with, you know, uh, easily segmented, testable question and answer. A way of living and learning, and there are very different ways of living and learning. Um, and uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot here at the Hatchery is disabusing yourself of the notion that you are coming in to solve, that you've decided what problem you're going to solve, and you kind of have an idea of what to do, and you're just taking next steps. And it's really getting people to focus on and be present with the question and figure out if you've done the discovery to figure out if it's a real problem for people, if you're listening to what you hear. And in this case, that can be applied to the self as well, right? Like, you know, you've got to really do that discovery work. You're a professional at doing that discovery work with a client. And yet you haven't taken the time or have the time to do that discovery work with yourself. So um, that is something that I think is maybe worth digging into a little more deeply. And, and I want to go back to the very beginning of, of your last response, because you said, you know, that in 10 years you'd achieved your goals and it was hard and you'd stumbled through most of it, but yet you'd stumbled forward and you'd fallen up, right? So I would like to maybe sort of go into this question of how do you stumble forward? How do you stop and fall up? But then how do you not lose your way at the same time? Um, because that stumbling forward can create so much momentum. Um, and so what, what, what does it take to, to create this pause? In your case, it was something very dramatic. Are there other ways that, uh, that we can proactively or purposefully kind of create these pauses to give us that chance to assess the way we're stumbling forward, but we may need to actually be living the question a little more than the results and the answers and the progress. Yes, oh, so many good things there. Yes, so we'll start with stumbling forward. I, I think that all of us have our independent motivations of what we want, what's important. I will share for me. I paid for my education mostly by myself. So when I graduated, I had $100,000 in student loans. That's a shit ton of money when you're graduating and you're 20 yeah. something years old saying how to, you know, making a fraction of that. Yep. So that to me was one of the things that I knew. And I came from a family where conversations about money often led to tension. Oh. So I, so, right. I mean, like probably like 90% <laughs> of people, but like certainly in my house. Yeah. yeah. And so money, I knew it would not equal happiness, but I knew it would equal opportunity. I knew it would equal flexibility. I knew it would equal peace of mind. And so I did have, I think, a very intentional mindset with asking for what I want, being comfortable, you know, I did go to grad school. I did do a, a, a master's in 10 months. I knew I could learn quickly. I knew that I could, I had poured into myself. And so if somebody was going to hire me, I wanted to be compensated for the hard work that I had put forth and the skin in the game that I put, right? I put $40,000 in a, in a grad school education forward so that you would hire me. 
And I think that we often think, especially early in our careers, that we are, um, that the company or boss is here and we are subservient hmm. coming in, that we have something that, that we want something of theirs, but there's nothing that we have to give. And I think that there is, if you're here, there's a ton to learn. Absolutely. Humility, have it. Hard work, do it. But there is absolute value at every stage of employment that you are giving the company. And I think if you, as someone that's coming in, whether it's negotiating for your first job, whether it is being in a role and feeling like, wow, I'm doing more and I really want to be compensated for that, thinking about it in the value you are delivering. Mm -hmm. And that is a different conversation than me as an individual. I want to raise because I deserve it. It is the mm -hmm. company is benefiting because of these things that I am doing. And that's why I, I coach anyone understand the business that you are in. So then you can articulate the value. I hear from a lot of young people. Well, my, my friend, so-and-so is making this. Well, your friend is not in this company. This company's economics or financials are different. Know this company and then be able to articulate that value. And go ahead. Well, I mean, you, you saw me thinking, I, you know, here's an interesting question too. I believe it was one of your recent blog posts, but I know I read recently that almost all men in negotiating their, their deal will negotiate salary. And a, a vast minority of women do. And yet we know <laughs> that um, this, there's a disconnect here with, uh, with this question of narrative, right? Because um, women very often in the narratives of work are more collective, are more collective value focused, are less, uh, you know, individually focused. And so there's something at odds here, because if the men are willing to do it, and yet are possibly less apt to articulate the value they're driving for the company, where's this disconnect and what can be done about it? Such a great question. I think that most often we see that women are grateful for the role. Men want to max out the value that they will get. And hmm. so that's great that you're grateful for the role. But like I said, you are not subservient. Right. You are giving value. And, you know, it's it can be a really tough place to be in a as a woman negotiating because it is not often a expected role you will take. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, there's a bunch of studies that men look at a job description. I think if it's they can have less than 50% of qualifications, women think they have to have almost 90%. And so I think that what I would say is, do you have the qualifications that matter? Like there's probably right. core qualifications and then there's probably like the flex, <laughs> flux ones of like, we hope that you could do these things. Yeah. I always say, look at other like experiences. And when I, my first job, somebody said, well, you've never done media buying. I said, well, yeah, 10 months ago, I didn't have a grad school degree and I do now. So if I can learn that in 10 months, then I imagine I can learn whatever you're trying to teach me. Google is also a thing. Like, so I think that you have to be able to articulate again, your story. You have to be able to draw similarities and parallels to say, if I could do this here, then I can replicate that here. That to me was a confidence thing for me. I could go in and ask for an arbitrary number, but if I knew my argument and I knew my case, then I felt so much more confident. And if they couldn't meet that, then I was okay not being in that space. So
So let me ask this then too, because I feel like it's tied to this current moment in your career transition. One of the things that is clear is that you felt a certain confidence in understanding this equation and articulating it, right? And that there is, it's also clear there are a lack of these narratives uh, in the, you know, just our general zeitgeist, right? Um, I think too often our narratives are on individual achievement and, uh, you know, people may feel comfortable bragging about their own accomplishments, but that's very different than uh, speaking to the value of the company. And when I say people in that first situation, really men are very often very uh, comfortable speaking about their accomplishments. But, and um, I think, and maybe I'm, I'm assuming too much here, but I think one of the reasons that this is so, this it all media is so important is because there aren't enough good examples of women in business being very confident and comfortable talking about the value they're driving for their company. And so this is an, it's an important kind of gap, right? In our, in our public storytelling space and you're filling it. So maybe you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, and I, I'll give you three very tangible examples. So I, like I said, my mom leads a sales company I'm also fortunate to have a mother who I always say, if she, I think anything in my life is half as great as she thinks I am, then yeah. like, I, like, you know, so like my probably blind confidence certainly comes from foundational, but my mom will negotiate anything. She'll try to sell you on why you should go to the store with her. It's like, I don't want to go. And she'll list out the 10 reasons. You, so like part of that, I think is very innate within me of just who we are. But I tell anyone, think about those life experiences, the, the things that frustrated you growing up or things that you do, patterns you have, those are your superpowers. Listen to those. Those are the things that make you unique and memorable in the workforce. And for me, that was one of the things, one of the first times that I had a discrepancy with pay um, it was, I, I went to the boss that I was working with and I said, Hey, I had hit these numbers. Um, one came in right past our, um, you know, you usually work on quarters came in past that, but we did hit the numbers and I would like to be compensated for that because the company will still benefit for it this year, but I would not get a bonus going into the next quarter. I articulated that the feedback I got was you care too much about money and you're not being a team player. And my response was broke my heart, right? Because I, so much, you want to be a good team player that touches on like loyalty. It, it talks yeah. very deep, like character statement. Right. But my response was one, I work in sales. I should care about money. Because if I'm making money or if the company's making money, then I'm making money. If I'm making money, the companies. So like, that's one. And two, if a male salesperson were sitting here, you never would have said that. You never would have found it off-putting that they were asking for what they thought they deserved. Even if you said no, you wouldn't have been pissed that they asked. You would have respected the ask and given them an answer. Interesting. So let me ask, what happened? How was Not that received? Because you're certainly right and people don't usually like it when they've told someone something and then the person is right in return. <laughs> I will give it to them their credit. They said, um, you're right. I wouldn't have said that. I'll check oh, myself wow. on that. Nice. Um, this is what I mean. And they expanded on what they meant around team player. 
This okay. was a time in which company financials had been down. Apparently other members in leadership had offered to take a pay cut. Hmm. So I said, okay. okay, that's fair. But I think that this is where you have to be so in tune internally for me. I was not going to be able to show up and do a good job if I did not have the peace of mind that my bills could be paid, that I was making mm -hmm. progress on my student loan. These were personal sure. motivations. Yeah. And if that company couldn't have met those, then maybe that was no longer, that that would indicate to me that, hey, there's a lot of other roles out there. Go look for those. It doesn't need to be devastating. It's mm -hmm. just that the things you need are no longer being able to be met here. Right. The other piece of feedback I have gotten is, you are so confident that it comes off as intimidating. And the feedback I said is, are you intimidated or am right. I intimidating? There right. Right. <laughs> right, great distinction, yeah. sure. And so I tell young, I tell anybody out there, but young women especially, that is other people's discomfort it, there's difference in coaching to say, hey, your delivery here, or hey, we can help you develop executive presence. There. Sure, that is going to come in the workplace. But if it is on something that you are too confident, that is a discomfort because there are not the, enough narratives that we have seen and experienced of knowing what a confident young woman looks like asking for what they need. Mm -hmm. And that to me is where there's the discrepancy is we lack so many of these examples that when we experience it, it's jolting for the person on the other side, male or female, and it's jolting for the young person, young woman, or any age woman that receives that. It's like, okay, well, I, I asked, I pushed for it. I'm being good for the company. And that to me was where so much of this was born. It was born from my personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I, I share those. One of those was very early in my career. One was, you know, later and, and more recent. And those two things stuck out to me to say, maybe there are ways I could have done it better. Sure, I'll take that. We can all improve communication, but I think it is much more a systemic problem of we're just not used to experiencing that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So let me ask this too. Um, I wanna make sure we leave time for uh, folks in the audience to ask questions. But one of the things that we try to do in this show is to sort of situate individual innovators and entrepreneurs within an ecosystem, right? Because Atlanta is unique uh, and it's different in a lot of ways as an innovation ecosystem. Um, and there are many voices that emerge here that I think don't emerge in other innovation ecosystems. And I think what you're doing now is a great example of that. So I wonder if you could just maybe talk a bit about uh, the fact that, yes, you bring your own, as you put it, personal uh, uh, superpowers and personal stories to uh, this narrative of success, but also the city lends certain ingredients to this whole thing. So what do you see as the really unique attributes of this city that have impacted your work as an innovator and an entrepreneur? I love this question so much because I have a deep, deep love and appreciation for what Atlanta has allowed me to accomplish in relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. I do not know, and I really doubt that I would have the same trajectory in any other city that I have had in Atlanta as early on as I did. The mm -hmm. things I say about Atlanta, we got the good parts of the South. We are hospitable. 
We are open to conversation. We are collaborative. We are a lot of times, it is very difficult to get that meeting, to have that casual coffee, to bump into so-and-so. And you have these great districts around town. I know that you all are doing that with the hatchery. I know that Midtown has its own section around Tech Square. I know that you have some things blooming downtown. You know, there's all these little hubs. And so one, you can physically put yourself there. But two, there's just an openness. I mean, Shannon, that's how you and I then. I think it was really born out of, hey, I love what your LinkedIn profile says. Here's what I'm up to. Would you want to grab a coffee? Right. And there's a collective, it doesn't feel, at least in my experience with other cities, that people are too busy to slow down to have that one-to-one human connection. Mm-hmm. And that to me has been such a gift. I have a my co-founder actually, she just relocated from DC. She said in the month that she has been fostering Atlanta connections, she has felt more a part of this community than she did living in Charleston for six years, DC for a year, Thailand for a year. Atlanta has been a place that she has most quickly found community connection and momentum than any other place she's been. And I thought that was so powerful. You know, it's easy to say, you know, party of one here, but to have somebody else come in and experience that I think is amazing. Um, You also have this very interesting connection between education, big corporates and the startup space. Mm. And whereas, you know, I, I get so pissed off when it's like, we're the Silicon Valley of the South. No, I don't want to be Silicon Valley. They're so different than what we are. Let's be Atlanta now. Mm. Let's not try to be a replica. And so, you know, I think that Silicon Valley, you have, you had a bloom of immense amount of capital come in from these massive exits from these technology and internet companies that are able to then go into the ecosystem, but they're very, it's a very specific lens in which they're investing in building businesses. What we see here in Atlanta is that because you have education, you have young minds, you have people that are on the cutting edge, you have people that are not yet hardwired and how things are supposed to be mm-hmm. intersecting with entrepreneurial mindsets, people who are hungry and willing to put in, you're seeing that born a lot of times in colleges now. I know Emory, I know Georgia Tech, I know SCAD, Morehouse, Spelman, GSU, like everybody is fostering those skills because I think a lot of times we think entrepreneurship, oh God, I have to have a ton of experience and wait till I get the big idea. And that's just really not true. We can look at the problems we see around us and entrepreneurship is responding to a problem in a, in a valuable way. And that to me is what's interesting. And then you do have the big companies. You can get that pilot customer. You can talk to the the people whose, you know, one voice can be such a game changer in any of these spaces. But I find that the innovation space, you know, it has been here for a little while, but it's still young in a lot of ways. And I think there's a lot of shared curiosity, whether you're 22 graduating from college or 42 with 20 years experience, there's a shared curiosity about how do we build And I take a lot of pride in that we're doing this here in Atlanta because I just love that we've seen over the past several years how Atlanta has been put on the map. We've seen that politically. We've seen that with some of the unicorns that have come out with Sales Loft and Calendly. Like we're seeing this now. Um, We saw that with Cabbage. Like we're seeing these little pockets and it's really cool that in, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, we can look and say, wow, we were a part of building that ecosystem. So that's for me, the pieces that have been really interesting. And I also think there's a huge conversation around women, people of color right now. We're seeing just this influx of voices 
and it feels like there's enough of us that people are starting to listen. There's a tremendous amount of work to do, but it does feel like there's something there. So I definitely at this point would like to encourage people to put questions in chat if there's anything you'd like to ask Casey. Um, and your last comment actually just for me invited one final question, which is for the young student innovators who are listening to this and feel this same sense of excitement and optimism to be part of this ecosystem, where do you think are good places for them to get started? Like are there particular resources or environments or programs that you would direct them to to sort of get started in this world? Great question. I um, I personally, one, we're in a digital world. So if what my answer might've been 12 months ago or 13 months ago might be a little different now. I think that one of the most valuable ways I have built the network or following of who I want to learn from is LinkedIn. So going on and seeing who is creating content, who is, has jobs that you want. Oh my God, that's the dream job. I want to know what, how they did. Like that is the way that I've started to find out what circles I wanted to be in and either requesting to connect or following certain people and seeing then that begins to build your algorithm, pardon me, algorithm, right? You start seeing the, the circles they're playing in, the events they're attending. And that to me is so valuable because then you figure out who your people are. I, I think that things like this that the university is putting on because you all do pull in, you have access to the outside community. Like if you're a student, use the resources that your university has. I think that is one of the biggest learnings I had. I look back at Virginia Tech and I just didn't search for them. And I'm sure maybe some of them weren't there at the time or maybe I wasn't finding them, but I didn't go immerse myself and leverage that. You were paying this tuition, you were investing in the education, get the real world aspect of it and know that like, Shannon, you want all these students to be successful. So you're gonna put skin in the game for them. Like that is the thing I don't think I realized is that my success was reflective of the university and the university would take a hand in helping me with that if I was just willing to get in the space and ask. So I think that's really powerful. And then if you are interested, but like, I don't know how to break into a space or whatever, volunteer your time. I started doing that. So Goody Nation, I'm a big fan of what they're doing. They're a social impact incubator. And what I started doing with them was saying, I want to be in the startup space. I need to learn some things, but I also want to do something for good. I donated my time. Any of you students, if you're great writers, if you're great designers, if you're great at social media, play to your strengths and say, I'd be willing to give my time in order to learn from you or get advice from you or mentorship. That is a wonderful way to start building that network. And one of my girlfriends always says, your network is your net worth. And I could not believe it more. Uh, that's a great saying, uh, and I think one that we should all pay attention to. There's somebody uh, in the audience who uh, volunteered to jump in and ask a question directly, so I'm going to go ahead and unmute her and let her jump in here. Excellent. Hi there, Casey. Thanks, uh, Shannon Clute, for um, giving me a chance to ask a question. Casey, I look forward to connecting with you um, more offline. Um, because so much of what you shared earlier really resonates with me. I, um, I too, am a, a mom of young children. My oldest is two and a half. 
and drove me crazy yesterday uh, during bedtime and my youngest, and actually just drove me crazy during nap time. Um, and my youngest, and there's a, there's a reason childcare is available. Um, and my youngest is, is seven months. And so we're, we're slowly moving out of sleep deprivation, middle of the night wanting to pull my hair out, um, but very slowly. Um, anyway, so uh, I think Shannon, you said earlier that you know Atlanta is um, an innovation ecosystem, and I um, appreciated kind of that comparison you made to Silicon Valley, where you know when I think about other places similar to Atlanta, I lived in D.C. and one thing that I feel like is different about Atlanta to D.C. is every time I go back, D.C. feels more and more yuppie young urban professional, where Atlanta, I think, is unique in that we have folks across generations as well as across sectors, as well as cultural, ethnic backgrounds um, who are also innovating. Um, with that, it's interesting. My, I have an idea and a, and a desire that I think is kind of in me, and I just stumbled upon somebody else or other folks who are kind of already doing that work, literally just a couple of hours ago. Um, and so my initial thought was, oh, somebody else is doing it. They have all these credentials and this experience. So I guess my idea is bad. I got that intimidated kind of piece mm -hmm. where I guess my idea is bad, or I guess I should just go choose something else because the need is that the need that I'm seeing is already being met. Mm -hmm. So I would love if you could speak to that um, and 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 to keep me from tearing up my notebook that I've been developing around my idea. Yes. Oh my gosh. So um, I feel for you immensely on the parenthood front, the idea generation, and you know when you're in that space. So I, my whole business, right, is around empowering women and telling different narratives. March 1st started International Women's Month. I signed up for all these women's events. I'm like, hell yeah, we're gonna do it. Everyone I attended, I'm like, well, shit, I've never had an original idea in my life. All these are already done. Why did I even do it? Like, this is not empowering. So I feel you. And then I had to stop and say, what does this actually tell me? It tells me there's a market need. It tells me there is validation that people are seeking this information. And I don't know what your idea is, but for me, I'm like, if I love Brene Brown, does that mean that I don't like Sheryl Sandberg? No, I love her. Does that mean that if I read Jay Shetty, I don't want to read Gabby Bernstein? No, I want more. And so what I started to think is I have... Only Casey can do Casey. I can, I, my unique experiences, my life experiences, the things I'm good at, that is what is unique here. And I have to stay true to that and stay close. And what I would recommend is thinking about the big idea might start to infringe or, you know, compare against or bump up against other people's ideas. That's okay. Market validation, great. Desirability is there. The second piece is, can you start small? Can you just start with a thing? So, is the podcast my end goal? No, I want to be a media empire like Oprah. So great. But the podcast is where we start today because it is validation that there are stories people want to hear and that I am able to tell them in a way that makes people want to engage. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your idea, where is the place to start? 
I also say be cautious of over intake of, you know, other information. It's great to do research. It's great to be aware, but there's a point of diminishing return where if it's killing your momentum and your, you know, inspiration, just like quiet those channels. I think that sometimes we, we think we have to go research, 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 and it might just be staying very close to your problem that you're trying to solve and seeing if you can, somebody told me, um, fix a problem for a hundred people. You don't need to solve it for a million people today. Just solve it for a hundred and do it really well. And that could be a place to start. So I don't know if that's helpful. I feel for you where you're at. Um, and I think that sometimes just vocalizing it of like, I have total imposter syndrome right now. This is what I'm thinking. And then giving yourself that time to just let that go. So one of the interesting things about the entrepreneurs we see is that so many of them do seem to feel this sense of imposter syndrome because as part of reading and being aware of patterns and really understanding the data is seeing your own shortcomings, your own gaps in relation to that problem. And yet we've spoken a lot about the fact that you've kept forward momentum as well. So while seeing those gaps, somehow you managed to have the confidence, you managed to fall forward and to, to fail up, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if uh, you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, as, as part of that, that forward momentum and that journey, you also have to be able to know when something's not a perfect fit, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have that confidence, you have to keep moving, even as you're aware of your gaps. But you have to be able to read the signs of when something is not a fit. And there's a great question from the audience, which is, what do you see as some of the early warning signs that let you know when a, a need for change is coming? Yeah, that's so good. And I would say, and rarely have I gotten it exactly right. I think each time you do it wrong, you learn and, and you're able to apply that to your next one. So some of it's gonna be experience. Um, I think one of the worst things you can do for yourself and for the environment you're in, the employer you're in, the boss you're with is to stay beyond that time for both parties. I just think that it gets so unhappy and unhealthy. Um, and so that would be, you know, I think that earlier action than not is, is where I would probably rely or lean towards now, because I think if you generally have that hunch and you, um, the hunch is usually right. I would say intuition usually is, is indicative of what may come. Had great advice from a coach. So two things I would say that everybody's point to leave is going to be different, but two things I think that could be very helpful for anybody assessing is one, um, do a values exercise. Know what your top two or three values are. There's, if you just Google Brene Brown values exercise from her dare to lead book, she pushes you to say two, because anything more than that, it's just arbitrary. Like, right. We might want to embody them all. For me, it is honesty or authenticity. So I have to be able to bring my most authentic self into a space that I just know that if I can't, I'd start underperforming. The other is to be known. I recently have pivoted that to do work worth being known for, but it's the idea that I know this about myself. I'm not a behind the scenes person. I'm happy to lift others up, but at some point I want my work to have eyes on the outside. And so for me, I have to think about that in the environments I'm in. And if you, for instance, if you're 
um, your value is recognition or teamwork or collaboration. And you feel anytime we feel pissed off or upset, it's because one of our values is intention. Mm-hmm. And so paying attention to those times where you're like, God, I really hate my job every day. Or, oh my gosh, that person at work, we constantly have friction. Asking yourself, journal exercise, talk to a friend, talk to the mirror. I don't care. But saying, what is that tension? And what is the value in question? Some of them you're like, yeah, I can live with that. That's not, that's, that's just so-and-so, or that's part of the job. There's going to be others that you just say, no, that doesn't feel good. And that's probably not, is it something you can fix? Is it something you can address? And if the answer is no, that's just an immovable force within the environment you're in or the person you're working with, that may be time to leave because you're going to continue to have that same friction. And it is going to potentially get to a point where it's, you're staying too long, you know, unhealthy, um, unproductive, all of those pieces. The other thing I had someone tell me, which I was so grateful that she did. She was a coach that I work with. Um, her name is Jen Derry. And she said, whenever you feel that you are ready to leave a place, make a list of all the things left to learn in your current role at that company. And when you do that, you can see, do you actually still have things to learn and grow from? Are there parts of the business that could help you for your next thing? For instance, for me, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneurship. I really needed to learn about financials. So that was something I asked, can I have more exposure to financials? I wanna understand how these things work. I wanna understand profit and loss statements. And so that was something I could learn in the environment I was in that supported my future goals that allowed me to almost see a light at the end of the tunnel in some ways, right? It reframes because now it's almost that checklist Mm -hmm. of the things I want to continue to get from here. And so I thought that was such a gift that she gave me because it it just reshifts and it may only be six weeks, maybe six months. It may be say, wow, I can reframe in my, I could want a whole new career here, but that was a wonderful exercise. So I think that those two could be very valuable um, to judge when it's right for you to leave because it's right for everyone and in life circumstances, you know, bill support family all of that is a very real part of when we can and cannot leave an environment so i just want to say before we conclude that uh, i've known you for several years now and i've always known you to be an authentic person uh, but this was a really enjoyable conversation to really get to know the behind the scenes casey and some of the things that you were, the bigger issues that you were thinking about uh, that guided a lot of the good work you were doing, which was obviously how I knew you on a day-to-day basis. So this has been a ton of fun. And I think that as values exercises go, uh, it all media seems to be a perfect space for you to be moving into because it's clearly authentic and it clearly seems to be work that is worth being known for. So uh, I'm excited to see what comes from your future endeavors. Is there anything else that you'd want to sort of say by way of conclusion to the audience or to uh, students who uh, were like you, say, 15, 20 years ago, uh, before you sort of sign off? Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. It's, I think, talking to students is actually one of my favorite places. We probably have that in common because there's it's just this raw piece of clay. Like there's something beautiful there, but there's so much potential. And I think that if I could talk to my younger self or talk to young people is there are a lot of barriers that we see in our paths of what can be. I would argue most of them are perceived barriers. 
they are not real barriers. They are, it feels really hard or um, I've never done that before or I don't have a training in that. Those are all things that you can take steps to. There's um, a great post I saw, it said, this little girl tells her mom, I wanna be an astronaut. And she says, well, you're gonna have to work really hard um, at school. You're gonna have to be in really good shape and spend 10 years training. And the little girl says, well, that's only three things. Huh. And I love that. And so I think that when we think about barriers of where we want to go, what we don't have to make 10 decisions, you just have to make one. And with that one decision that then if you made 10, you might have limited yourself because that one decision could open up so many other doors that are now possible. And finding the right, we are a product of the five people we spend the most time with. Recognize that the five people that surround you maybe of where you've come from or where you're at may not be the same five people that need to support you of where you're going. Mm -hmm. And just continue to take inventory of where you're spending your time, who is surrounding you, um, who is lifting you up. And if there are parts of that, that um, parts of that circle, those five people that don't serve you, like don't make that a perceived barrier, make that just like, no, we, we won't do that. So mm -hmm. those are my two. I think um, that if I could, could give my younger self. Oh, that's great. And I love that you concluded in a sense on another iteration of the message of your network as your net worth. Uh, because again, it's those relationships, those friendships uh, that really carry you along that, uh, that support the work and support you. Yes. And I think networking gets a bad uh, connotation sometimes. It feels transactional. It is not. Mm -hmm. It is about a shared curiosity and interest in each other. And there are sometimes you will give a ton and there's sometimes you will get a ton. And it is the continued consistency of maintaining a network that is the long game. It's like you don't buy stocks for the eight month return. You do it for the long game. The network is the same way, like pour into it with consistency. That's great. Yeah. Well, Casey, thank you so much for doing this. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And this time it was, uh, it was a pleasure to do it in a bit more public forum. Indeed, Shannon, this was great. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.